Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to 13, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. You can follow me on the screen. It reads, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a joy and privilege for us to turn to God's word. Let's pray now as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we look at your word. Thank you that it has all that we need for life. Lord, thank you that it points to the fact that we are to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to have faith in him. Help us to trust him. Lord, help us to trust his completed work on the cross. Lord, as we, as we hear your word now, we pray that you'd work through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd work through me, that you would speak through me, that I would be a window to Christ. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, would you help us each as we are so prone to distractions. We're so prone to having hard hearts. We're so prone to not accepting what your word has to say. Lord, help us to have soft hearts. Help us to come to your word and be wanting to be changed. Help us to be working out our faith even as we hear your word preached now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, does Jesus marvel at your faith? Does Jesus marvel at your faith specifically this morning? Does Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the one who's fully God and fully man, the one who was there at the beginning of time, the one through whom all things were created, the firstborn over all creation, the one who was with God at the very beginning because he was God, the Word, the, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, the Heir of all things, the Son of Man, wisdom personified, the Lion of Judah, the ruler of, over all the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the one who walks through the seven lampstands with hair as, as white as wool and eyes like fire and feet like bronze, the one whose voice is like the sound of, of many waters, who holds the seven stars in his hand, 
who has a sharp double-edged sword come out his mouth. The first and the last, he who lives, the Holy One, the True One, the Amen, does he look at you and marvel at your faith? Does he look at you and recognize you as somebody who has faith in him? You see, Jesus is the one who, who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And as he looks this morning and looks upon you sitting here in Stockwell Baptist Church, on one of those blue seats, does he look at you and see somebody who has faith in him or somebody who does not? Because you see, the consequences of, of either of, of those things, of Jesus looking at you and seeing faith or not seeing faith, are drastic. And we see that even from our passage this morning. We're, we're going to see a man, a man who Jesus marveled at his faith. But we're also going to see a warning. We're going to see that for those who do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there is a drastic and a sad reality for them. There is a place of, of darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth for the whole of eternity. So it's, it's vitally important, isn't it, that we understand, well, as Jesus looks at us, does he see us as those who have faith and who will spend eternity with him? Or does he see us as those who don't trust in him and will experience damnation forever? This, this is a vitally important passage for us to see this morning. And it's a wonderful narrative that has us so much to teach us about ourselves it's not just a story from 2,000 years ago, but it's a story that applies to us today. So let's walk through it. And I think the first thing that our passage shows us is that there is a problem. And specifically, it shows us the centurion's problem. This man that we're, that we're introduced to. But let's, let's rewind for a second, because we're in the book of Matthew. We're in the book of Matthew, and, and so far we've been walking through our series. If you've been with us, you know that we've been going through the book of Matthew. And back in chapter 4, we saw that, that Jesus had started to produce these miracles. That he's been doing these miracles. He's been healing people. He's been healing the sick. He's been um, turning people who are blind and giving them sight. He's been doing all of these amazing things. And, and people have, have recognized this. And they started to, to follow him. They started to want to, to be around him and to, to spend time with him. And as we get to chapter 5 of Matthew, we, we have the most famous sermon probably in the whole of human history. We turn to, to the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus really outlines his kingdom manifesto. He outlines what it means to be somebody who is in his kingdom. He outlines what it looks like to be a Christian, to be a true follower of him. And the crowds are gathering and they're listening to what he says. But as we get to chapter 8, Matthew, in many ways, the writer of this gospel, signifies a change. As Jesus comes down from the mountain, we, we see this change. He's, Jesus has been preaching, and he's been speaking about his kingdom manifesto, but now we're going to see his authority. We're going to see his incredible works. We're going to see the things that he's done. We've gone from preaching to his acts. And we start to see his authority through his miracles. And just like last week, if you were here, there, there is somebody who has a problem. And it's not just a small problem, but it's an absolutely massive problem. And here we see it's a centurion. A centurion whose servant is suffering terribly. 
We see that in verse 6. The centurion has come forward to speak to Jesus and his servant is suffering terribly. Actually, there's another account of this in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke says that, that this man is actually about to die. In Matthew, we, we read that he, he's paralyzed, he's suffering terribly. This person is in a drastic position. You see, this centurion has come to Jesus because he wants this problem solved. This centurion would have been a, a Roman general, which, which makes this really interesting, right? Because he's not naturally one of the people of God. He's not naturally an Israelite. He's a Roman soldier. A man who had been in charge of a hundred men. A man who would have probably been placed in that position because of how efficient he was at his job. Maybe because of how many people that he'd killed. Maybe because his authority over others in getting them to do what he wants. But whatever he had done, he had got to this prestigious position. He would have been respected and he'd have been revered. He'd have been the type of person that as he walked past, people would have given him reverence. He's one of those people that we'd have seen with all the medals across his uniform. People at his beck and call at his very word. And this person, he, he comes and he speaks to Jesus. But now let's, let's quickly deal with, with one small problem quickly. Because some of you might know, and as I've just mentioned, there, there are two accounts of this story, this true story that happens. There's an account in Matthew, and there also is an account in Luke. And now there might be, even in the, in the congregation here, there might be some skeptics here. There might actually be some people who have read both of those accounts. And if you have, and even if you want to turn to it now, you'll see that there, are, there is a small little difference between those accounts. You see, actually, what Luke says is that Luke says that the centurion sent people. He sent people to go and speak to Jesus. But look, what does it say in Matthew? Verse 5, it says, A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, some of you might be thinking, Now, ah, I've got you, Nate. There's, there's some kind of contradiction here. You see, even the gospel writers don't quite understand what's going on. But actually, have a think about this. The reality as Matthew speaks, and if you've read the different gospels, you, you will see this, is that they, different have, they have different emphasis. They tell their stories in slightly different ways. They, of course, tell the truth about what happened, but they have different aims. You see, Matthew's not trying to colour in all the details and every single thing that's going on. Instead, he's giving broad brushstrokes. He's given us an overall picture of what's going on. And actually what he does is, in some senses, he abbreviates his story, or he just tells us what we need to read, what we need to hear. You see, as Matthew says the centurion comes forward, he's speaking figuratively. So let's say, for example, me and Malayo are... Um, at the front of church, at the end of church. And Yannick has, has something that he wants to say to us, but he sends Kiton to come and deliver the message. Now, as me and Malayo are speaking afterwards, Malayo might say, oh, Yannick said something to me earlier. Whereas I might say, Yannick said something through Kiton. You see, both things are true, right? Because that person has delivered their word. Now, they might have delivered that, that word for a person, but what has happened is they have delivered something they want to be communicated. And that is what is happening here. And it's good for us to be aware of this. In some sense, I was, I was almost 
not sure about saying this, but I think it is important, isn't it? Because as we work through our Bibles, particularly as we work through the Gospels, and we see these four different accounts of Jesus' life, there are some people that would say that there are contradictions. There are some people who would challenge us. There are some people who would challenge our faith. But we as Christians are to work our faith through, through fear and trembling. We are to look at God's word and we are to seek to understand it. And we see here that the gospel accounts don't contradict one another. But instead what Matthew is saying here is that the centurion is giving his word. But Luke just gives us a little bit more detail that that word was through people the centurion sent. You see, Matthew's just attempting to give us the main points. But these are the words of this centurion. And there is a surprise in all these words, right? This centurion, as I said, he's, he's not a Jew. In fact, he's a Roman. He's not one of God's people from, from the Old Testament, one of the Israelites. In fact, the Romans had placed the Jews under their control. The Romans, in many ways, had oppressed God's people. And yet, this important military figure, this person that would have had access to all the best doctors and all the politicians and everybody that he needed to and probably finances and everything that he could ever need, this man approaches Jesus. He approaches this person who, who actually he is turning to and is asking for help with his problem. But more importantly, look at how he refers to him. Look at verse 6. That one simple word at the start of verse 6, Lord. You see, this centurion who has people at his beck and call, who has authority over so many people, actually calls Jesus Lord. Because he recognises who Jesus is. You see, he doesn't call Jesus teacher. He doesn't just refer to him by his name. But he calls him Lord. Even this man who's, who's in authority, he doesn't speak about his own authority. He doesn't try and show Jesus his CV or try to impress Jesus. He doesn't try and force Jesus to obey him because of his position. But instead, the first thing he says is Lord. You see, he's heard these stories from Matthew 4. Maybe he's heard reports of, of this sermon. But unlike maybe some of the crowd and some of the people that are actually following Jesus... He realizes and recognizes who Jesus is. And that is that he is Lord. He recognizes his power. You see, this man is a man who is also compassionate. He isn't even asking help for, for his wife or his children or another centurion or even one of his soldiers. But he's asking for help for his servants. A person that he doesn't have to care about but clearly does care about. And he's realized that actually, for all the authority and the power that he has, there are things that even he can't do. And yet he turns to this man, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he calls him Lord, and he asks him for his help. You see, we don't often expect those in authority to care for the little guy, do we? We don't expect our CEOs to care for their cleaners, or the royals to care for their maids, but this centurion does. You see, he already has captured something of what it looks like to obey Jesus' teaching, to love others as you love yourself. And he falls under the command and the authority of Jesus in calling him Lord and asking for his help. And the beauty of all of this is that just like last week, as this centurion, as this man comes to Jesus, he finds one who is willing. Jesus says that he is willing to go and heal this servant. 
And in many ways, we could expect the story to end here. Jesus goes, he, he finds this servant, he heals him, the end. We can all go home and have an early lunch. But actually, we see a drastic change, this, this change to the narrative. And that is our second point that we see. We see the centurion's faith. You see, it seems so strange, doesn't it? The centurions come. In many ways, the centurion has humbled himself. He's, he's sent these people to Jesus, and he's recognized that, that he actually needs to go and ask somebody greater than himself. He needs to ask the Lord for his help. And Jesus has agreed. And, and if anything, the servant might have even heard this and, and has been really excited. But then the centurion does something really, really surprising. Look down with me at verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Imagine a world-class doctor that you somehow had access to, and somebody that you cared about deeply was, was seriously, seriously ill. And this world-class doctor was an expert in that field. And somehow you had, you'd got word to this world-class doctor. And you'd said, please, please come and see this person that I love and, and help them and heal them. And you'd received reply that, that this doctor was, was going to fly over. He was going to come and he was going to heal that person that you love so much. And then imagine turning and saying, actually... Don't worry about coming. Don't worry, you don't need to get on the plane. You don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy. You, you've got these PhDs, you've got these doctorates. You're, you're amazing in so many ways. Don't come. Imagine the servant hearing that, particularly at the start of what the centurion is saying. This, Jesus has just agreed to come and heal this servant, and now the centurion is telling him not to come. I think if I was a servant, I'd be pretty upset, right? But look what the centurion has realized. You see, the centurion has realized in some sense that he is a sinful man. That he himself is a man who is imp impure, that he is imperfect. And that actually he has the perfect son of God, this perfect Lord, coming to visit him. And he realizes that in some way he is not worthy. I think also he may realize that in some way... What he's asking Jesus to do would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. Because for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile at the time, for somebody who was a teacher of the law to go into a Gentile's house, would have made them unclean. Maybe the centurion is realizing that, and he's not wanting to put Jesus in a compromising position. But you know what? Most importantly, the centurion has realized that Jesus has all authority. He has realized that Jesus truly is Lord. Look at verse 9. He speaks about how he has authority himself. You see, soldiers are at the beck and call of their commanding officers, aren't they? I'm not sure what your favorite war film is. Maybe it's The Outpost or Act of Valor or 1917, 12 Strong, Midday, Hacksaw Ridge, They Shall Not Grow Old or 13 Hours. Maybe you like Dunkirk or Fury or We Were Soldiers or Lone Survivor or Saving Private Ryan. But you know what? In all of those films, we see something very clearly, don't we? We see that there are soldiers and those soldiers are at the beck and call of their commanding officers. 
We see those soldiers that stand to attention as a commanding officer walks past. We see those that would go over the ridge, so to speak, because their commanding officer has commanded them to do it. We see as a commanding officer tells them to do different jobs, whether it's cleaning the toilets, or whether it's serving the food, or whether it's going into a precarious position that you might actually lose your life, that those soldiers listen to those commanding officers. Those soldiers have a loyalty to them. They obey them. They follow their leaders. They take instructions of those who are above them. I went to see Jacob's play the other day, Drum, and there was a lovely, lovely line in it that really stood out. He said, we all have bosses. We all have bosses, don't we? The centurion is recognising that as a centurion, he has people at his beck and call. And as the centurion says, just as his servants obey him, just as his soldiers obey him, he knows that Jesus has authority. He recognises that Jesus has authority over sickness and death, even to the extent that he doesn't even need to physically be there to heal somebody. This centurion had all the reason in the world to be proud and to be self-sufficient and to rely on himself. And yet he recognises that Jesus is truly Lord and has authority. He recognises that as he turns to a man and says, go and get me a drink of water, Jesus can turn to sickness and say, be gone. He recognises as he turns to somebody and he says, go and serve the food, that Jesus can look at cancer and can say, be gone. He realises, as he could say to somebody to go and clean a toilet, that Jesus could take a brain tumour and could take it out of a person and heal them. He realises that Jesus has authority even to look at death and say, that is not enough for me because I am powerful and I have authority over death. You see, just as this centurion has authority, Jesus has even greater authority. This centurion has truly understood who Jesus is. He's understood that Jesus doesn't even have to be there. Imagine recognising that power. That power to know that some of you I know have family that are in, in places in the world that are far, far away. And that we have to go and visit them when they when they are ill. But there was one who had so much power that he could stand somewhere that was completely distant from where this sickness was, and he could say, Be gone, and it would be healed. You see, the centurion recognizes, and he has faith. We see that. Look at at verse 10. Jesus turns to those who he's with. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. You see, Jesus, the perfect son of God, regards this man as having faith. And he even places him above those who were part of God's people, who, who were Israelites, who were Jewish. You see, this this centurion, he's recognised his own sinfulness. He's recognised that he is unclean, that in many senses that he's unworthy. Even though he's in this this worldly important position, he's recognised that he's even unworthy of this Lord Jesus. And he also recognises Jesus as Lord. He doesn't have faith in his own position, or in his own power, or in his own strength, or even in his good deeds. But he has faith in the one who has authority over it all. But then Jesus opens up. Jesus opens up with this, with this groundbreaking statement that in some ways changes the whole course of human history and has specific application to each one of us as we sit in this church building 2,000 years later. 
something that is vitally important for us to, stand, to understand. And that's our third and final point. All who have faith will be saved. Let me, let me take you back for a minute to, to the Old Testament. You see, God had his chosen people, Israel, and they were the people that he'd set apart to be his, the ones for whom he had protected, who he had given his law to. And there were times through the Old Testament, as we, as we flick through our Bibles, that, that we see that there are other people from other nations that have joined on to God's people. But God's people were set apart. They were the Israelites. They were the Jews. We read that he says that they will be his people. But even from the start, you see, there is a promise that God gives. There is a promise that God gives to Abraham, the father of God's people, that actually the whole world will be blessed through God's people. Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, God says this to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And listen to this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's a promise that we later see playing out through the whole of the Old Testament. We see, we see the prophets. The prophets, they, they give this echo, they give this whisper, they give this promise that yes, God's people are the Jews, they are Israel, but God is going to bring all types of people into his kingdom. He's going to bring Gentiles, which means anybody who isn't a Jew. He's going to bring all these people into his family. He is going to save all of the nations. And in Matthew, we see Jesus start to fulfill this promise. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those people who were God's original forefathers for the, his people, the Israelites, there will be people from all tribe, tongues, and nations who will one day dwell with them. You see, Jesus is saying that there were previously people that were outside of God's special people, but they will now come in. And what's the amazing thing is that includes us. You see, most of us here, are, we aren't Jewish, and yet we've been brought into God's family. And it means that one day we can have a hope, a hope that through Jesus we will sit down at that great banquet where there'll be all sorts of incredible food, There'll be ackee and saltfish, there'll be jerk chicken, curried goat, jollof rice, and finally you Nigerians and you Ghanaians won't argue about it anymore. Because <laughs> it'll all be perfect. And we'll be there. Although we aren't ceremonially Jewish, although we weren't born into Israel, we will be with the patriarchs. Without sounding irrelevant, irreverent, I'll be able to turn to Abraham and get him to pass me the jollof rice. I'll be able to, to notice Isaac taking, uh, Isaac taking an extra helping of curried goat. I'll be able to ask Jacob exactly what it was like to trust God and to have faith in him in positions where he, he so often might have questioned God. Me, you, able to sit at the table of the feast next to these great men of faith, these forefathers of Israel, because we've been included. We'll meet, it will mean that we'll be in paradise with the Lord. We'll have resurrected bodies and we'll have eternity to spend in God's presence. 
You see, I think we, we get a small picture of heaven, don't we, when we, we share meals as a church. We, we sit with people from different tribes and tongues and nations and different backgrounds. And we all enjoy together each other's company. And the fact that we're brothers and sisters, we experience joy. And we recognize that we, we even we, have been brought into God's family. But one day we'll do that in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity because of Jesus. The beauty is that all peoples can be included. And that is a question. Do you have that hope? Does Jesus marvel at your faith? Does Jesus recognize that you have faith in him? You see, Jesus calls all types of people. He calls men and women. He calls people who are struggling with what gender they are. And you know what? That will also be resolved in heaven. You see, he calls singled, and he calls married, and he calls bereaved. He calls those that are suffering with same-sex attraction. He calls the royals, and he calls those that are homeless. You see, it doesn't matter what social class you're in, upper, medium, lower, whatever, it doesn't matter, because in Jesus you can be called into his kingdom. It doesn't matter what education you have. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD or an MD or a DVIV or an A-level or an O-level or no levels at all. It doesn't matter how much you earn. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter what your career is. It doesn't matter your, your background. It doesn't matter what your body looks like or what skin color you have. It doesn't matter how you feel about your body. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what experiences you've had or what sin that you've struggled with. Because you see, all tribes, all tongues, and all nations can be part of Jesus' kingdom and can be with him forever. All tribes, all tongues, all nations. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through faith. It happens through trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not through doing good things. It's not through just coming to church or having a 100% commitment to the, to, to the prayer meeting. It's not about giving money or even just praying for 15 minutes a day or reading your Bible every single day. It's having faith in Jesus. And you know what? It's not even the strength of our faith. But instead, it's the strength of the one that we have faith in. I've known people who have had, in some senses, in worldly terms, a weak faith. Who have, who have questioned whether God really loved them. Who have questioned whether, whether actually he really was for them. But who have had faith in him. And because of that, can know that they will be part of God's kingdom. I can think of, of a man from, from years and years ago who suffered with severe, severe depression, hundreds of years before any of us were born, who always wondered whether Jesus would truly, truly accept him, but had a small amount of faith. And even before he died, was, was crying to his friend, saying, I'm not sure, but I have faith, but I don't know. A man who had tried to commit suicide many times and suffered with mental health. And when he died, his friend turned after he'd given his final breath and he looked up and he said, I told you so. Because he knew that he had faith. I can think of my own nan who struggled throughout her whole life wondering because of the bad things that she'd done in her past whether actually that would mean in some sense that she wasn't going to be right with God. Of the questions that she had, of the times that she would struggle and yet she had faith. And although that faith might be as small as a mustard seed, 
If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you can be saved. There's an analogy that isn't perfect. There's an analogy of having faith as in getting onto a plane. And some of us stroll onto that plane with our bags and our kind of things that we brought and we're completely confident. We don't even think about it. But there are some of us who are trembling at the knees, who are unsure, but we get onto that plane. And that, in one sense, is a picture of faith, right? Because what is the same as both of those people? Both of them have had faith and are on that plane. But where that analogy falls down is that talks about our works and, and us being special and somehow drumming up some effort to get onto the plane. You know, the beauty of faith is that faith is a gift from Jesus. And that even faith is something that is given to us. The even fact that we could be on that plane, so to speak, is because Jesus has allowed us to be on that plane. He's allowed us to have faith. You see, all types of people can have faith in the Lord Jesus. And we have that opportunity later to go out and evangelize, to go out into our local area and to speak to those people who are maybe smelling of alcohol or body odor, or those people that are walking really fast past us and don't seem interested, or those people that are completely different to us that we wouldn't normally want to go and speak to, or maybe those people that are completely like us. But we can go and we can speak to them of the faith that we have and long that they might have that faith as well. Because faith in Jesus means that all peoples can be saved. But alongside this amazing news, there is also a warning. Look with me at verse 12. You see, Jesus, as much as he says that there will be some people who will be with him, he also says this, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, there will be some people who won't go to heaven. There'll be some people who instead go to hell. And the scary thing is, is that some of those people will think that they are gods. Look at the, look at the language that Jesus uses here. He says, sons of the kingdom. You see, he's not talking literally here. He's speaking of the Israelites, of the Jews, many of whom thought that actually they were part of God's kingdom. But they thought that they were part of God's kingdom because of their works. They thought that they were part of God's kingdom just because they physically followed Jesus. But to follow Jesus truly, you have to have faith in him. It's not down to your good works. It's not down to your obedience. But it's down to having faith. And the power comes through the one that you have faith in. You see, there are those that might refer to themselves as being Christians. And that applies to us also, I think, as well, right? Jesus is talking about the Jews here, but there are some of us who think that we are part of God's kingdom. And we think that we're part of God's kingdom because we serve on rotors, or because we maybe even read our Bibles, or because we would call ourselves Christians. But the thing that marks us out truly as Christians is who we have faith in, and that is the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. What marks out God's people is not nationality, or how you work, or who you are, but it's faith in him. And it's a challenge that's given to us all. So as we end, let's, let's try and apply this. And, and let's look at applying this by looking at the different people in this narrative. First of all, let's look at the centurion. You see, there will be some of us, there will be many of us, I hope, who are like the centurion, who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust him, who he looks at and recognizes as one of his own. 
And I want to remind us this morning that we're justified by faith alone and not works. That although we start the Christian life with faith, that is the way that we continue the Christian life. You don't ever graduate to getting to a point that you can make yourself clean enough or good enough for Jesus to look at you and be like, oh, really glad you're part of the team. We are to live by faith. We are to constantly look back. And what are we to look back to? Well, in some, in some ideas, the centurion looked at what Jesus has done in the past, and we do too. But we look to something even greater. You see, we don't just look at his authority to heal people. We look at his authority over death and over sin. And how do we see that? We see that on the cross. The cross where Jesus died and he took on our sin. And he came back to life to show his authority. And that is what we are to have faith in. Not that we've attended church 49 Sundays out of 52 in a year. Or that, that we do certain things or that we have this perception of ourselves that other people see us as good people but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, we are to have faith. That's what the centurion is showing us. That is what Jesus is commending him for here. And there are a couple of things that he particularly does. First of all, he recognizes his sin. Let us never be a people who don't recognize our sin. Let us never be a people who think that we are clean or that we've, we've done something extra special that Jesus might look upon us with favor. But let us be people that recognize that we don't deserve Jesus to come under our roof but he has because of his grace but as much as we recognize our sin we are also to recognize our savior you see the centurion recognizes who Jesus is he recognizes that he has authority and he has faith in him Jesus isn't just a good teacher he's not just a special man he's not just somebody that we can turn to when we're in need no he has all authority and so we who are Christians are called to be like the centurion, to have faith in Jesus' authority, to have faith in Jesus' death on the cross, and to never turn from that, to work out our faith with fear and trembling, repeatedly returning to the gospel, and remembering that even that faith that we have is a gift that has been given to us by Jesus himself. But there are many of us and there would have been those in the crowd who weren't following Jesus. And very, very simply, I want to leave you with this, verse 12. Because you see, Jesus and the Bible is very clear about the judgment that is to come. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you are going to hell. It's not a nice thing for me to say. It's not something that will make sound bites on Instagram or get loads of views maybe on YouTube. Or actually even be something that would mean that you would like me. But unfortunately my job isn't to be liked. But it is to point you to God's word. And God's word says very, very clearly. And Jesus' word says here. That there will be those that are thrown to outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. And I would not be doing my job. And I wouldn't be faithful to scripture if I didn't say. That this is a reality. And if you don't follow Jesus, then you will be going to hell. If you don't have faith in him, you will be going to hell. If you are relying on your works or just trying to be a good person, then you will go to hell. And I'm not going to say much more than that. It may be that you absolutely hate me for saying that. It may be that you want to scream at me or come up to me at the end of this and tell me off. But that is what God's word says. And that is what we're pointing you to. But also finally... 
the one last group as we end, I want to talk to some of those who might think that they are in the kingdom. You see, look what Jesus does here. Verse 10, he turns to those who followed him and he says to them, truly I tell you, I've not found such faith even in Israel. And then he goes to warn them that there are those people who aren't truly in the kingdom. So it remains the question to each of us, are we those who have faith? Are we those who have faith? Do we trust in Jesus' work on the cross alone for our salvation? Are we going to be like the centurion who turned, even though he was in an important position, even though he might have done good works, but turned and came under Jesus' authority? Because the only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can go to that marvellous banquet, the only way that we can have eternity with Jesus is to have faith in him. And that's the wonder, isn't it? That it's not about our works and about being impressive and about somehow cleaning ourselves up. But instead, we are to turn to Jesus and have faith in his death on the cross. And that by trusting in him and the gift of faith that he has given us, we can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to be those who have faith? Lord, in a world where we're told that we are important and that we are good people and that in some ways that we are impressive, Lord, instead we know that as we come to your word, we are told that we are all sinners and that we are all deserving of your judgment. And Lord, we could never by our own works become right with you. But Lord, we find in this narrative, in this true story, this example of the centurion of having faith in you. Lord, help us to be those who put all of our trust and all of our faith in you. For those who are Christians, let us never move on from that. And Lord, for those who aren't, Lord, I pray that even this morning they would heed that warning and that they would turn. They would turn to you and have faith that trusting in your death on the cross and your resurrection is the only way that they can be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.